In my household, at least, I don't know about for your household, if you have children, choosing a name can be one of the hardest things, right? It can be a challenging thing to pick a name for your child. What am I going to name my child? Uh, because biblically speaking, at least names mean a whole lot. Zach even shared recently, what does Israel mean? Struggling with God. I mean, so all the names in the Bible mean something. And so for us, we wanted to give our children names that meant something. So for our oldest daughter, Grace, we went very evangelical. We went Grace. Grace, that's for you uh, in the back there. And so Grace, and her middle name is Lael, so of God or belonging to God. And so we think Grace of God, that's how we came up with that. My third child, Augustine Jude, I got a little more Catholic on that. And uh, so my son, his name is Augustine, which means revered, but he's a little tyke, so I don't know if anybody's really fearful of him or anything like that or reverence towards him. Um, But Augustine Jude, and Jude means praise. And so we liked it. And I hope that his life would be marked by the grace of God in the same way that St. Augustine's life was marked by the grace of God. Not that he was holy from the get-go, but he actually came to a place where he recognized his deep sin. And then God used him in miraculous ways, even in spite of himself in the history of the church. And so I pray that for my son. And then for our newest addition to the family, if you haven't met her, that's baby Evangeline. And Evangeline means bearer of good news, and her middle name is Noel, and so it's Christmas, and you get the idea there. Um, Christmas is all about good news, that God would condescend us, take on human form, and, and live amongst us, come to the ghetto of this earth, is unbelievable. It's the greatest of all miracles, I think, in my estimation. And so that's the other three kids, and then we have the fourth child, who's second in order, and her name is Aaliyah, Aaliyah Joy. And her name means ascent, where we get the idea for the name, it comes ascent. And like I told you, every time you go to Jerusalem, if you're worshiping, you go uh, ascending up the mountain. And so we thought about this. Uh, she reminds us of the pilgrimage that we make through this life. And, uh, and so she is our Aaliyah. She's our kind of song of ascent, if you will. And so we always sing to her the song that my wife sang, which comes from these verses. Remember when God brought back the exiles from Zion? It was if we were dreaming. Remarkable things. God has done remarkable things. And so for all of my children, wherever they go in this life, I pray that their name would follow them. They wouldn't want to change it on us. And uh, it would mean something to them wherever they go. And it would maybe anchor them uh, in the faith in some way. I want to share with you, though, uh, a prayer that my wife prayed on the, the day after my daughter Aaliyah was born, and we'll get into the psalm, and it kind of has something to do with it. It says, Thank you, Lord, for superintending all the details of our lives. Thank you especially today for our second baby girl, Aaliyah, who has added a richness and fullness to our family that cannot even be expressed. Even the pain of her birth has affirmed in our hearts our longing for the recreation of this world. Her name will remind us daily of this ever-present reality. Let us always be filled with joy and angst in this anticipation. May Aaliyah's life honor and glorify you and point others to the wonderful and perfect fulfillment of things to come. Bless her, I pray, this day with a heart that loves eternal things and help us to raise her with a kingdom perspective. And so uh, that's the prayer of a mother. For her child, which I marvel at, I was probably on my phone. And so, um, 
But Psalm 126, it's a story of redemption, similar to the psalm we kind of looked at last week. It was a story of redemption, a story of salvation, a story of what God had done. But in order to kind of feel the psalm, to kind of resonate and connect with it, I think we need to reflect on another psalm. If you turn to Psalm 137 in your Bible, flip over a little bit, Psalm 137 is a psalm of Judah and those exiles who are taken to Babylon, where 126 is a psalm of those who return But in order to kind of understand what it feels like to return, I think we need to know what it feels like to have gone. And so let me read this for us briefly, a part of it. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forgot you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. I don't know if you know what it feels like to be ripped from your home, from a place where you find security and rest, where you recreate, where your joy is located. Not many of us experience something to this extreme where we've been kind of ripped from that place of security, the place we call home, and even had our loved ones taken from us. It's probably not all of our experience, but I think there's a way that we can enter into this and resonate a little bit with it. And so I've got a short little video for us to kind of capture maybe some of the emotion that's here, kind of set again to song. Uh, of this psalm. And so, Julie, if you could please play that for us. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept When we thought of home so far away On the branches of the willow trees we hung on Hid our hearts from the enemy And the men that surrounded us Made demands that we clap our hands and sing
Katrina happened about a decade ago now, and while we maybe have never been kind of taken from our home by captors, captors in this kind of a way that Israel has in the psalm that I just read to you, maybe we know kind of that kind of distress. Maybe you were in South Florida during Andrew in the early 90s. Maybe you had loved ones uh, who went through Katrina in New Orleans uh, maybe you had loved ones who were nearer to 9-11. Uh, maybe you've been following something equally um, tragic, which is the crisis in Syria with all those who've been displaced from their home because of violence. And, uh, and I think about that as I shared the video with you guys, thinking about Katrina Thinking about Katrina, I have a little infograph here. The worst humanitarian crises in the world today, and we think about the Indian Ocean tsunami, five million uh, in terms of people affected. Hurricane Katrina, 1.7 million people affected. The Haiti earthquakes, uh, 3.5 million people affected. And the Syrian crisis kind of more than all combined at 12 million people displaced from their homes. And so there's things in our world that are going on that kind of are comparable to maybe what Israel went through, but you don't even need to go through these things to know uh, the deep loss and tragedy in this life. 
You don't even have to leave your home to know deep tragedy and loss in this life. And so hopefully that helps us to resonate a little bit with the experience of Israel. And we go back to Psalm 126, and it says this, When the Lord restored the fortunes to Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Can you imagine going from the most hellacious, nightmarish situation to uh, dreaming? Dreaming. It's almost too marvelous to think about the salvation that God provided for Israel, for his people uh, of Judah who had been taken by the Babylonians. And uh, thinking about this idea of dreaming and nightmares, it's, uh, it's something that resonates with all of us. All of us have faced those different nightmarish situations in our lives where we've, again, lost loved ones and have gone through those painful moments. God redeemed Israel. But verse 2 and 3, it says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts for joy. Then we said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. As with last week, we talked about God's salvation. Salvation leads to singing, I said last week. And in this case, salvation leads to laughter, to joy. That which was a nightmare has become a dream-like thing. It's almost so, it's almost too good. It's so, uh, almost too marvelous. It's unbelievable. It's too fantastic. And uh, God had done this for them. God had said that after 70 years in Babylon that God would redeem them. He would call them out. He would bring them back. And he would save them. And God was faithful to his word. He did. He redeemed his people from, his, from their captors, from their oppressors, and brought them back into a land, their land. But it's hard to think about this, the going away and then coming back. Because for a Jew, everything, their whole identity is tied up in this place, right? Everything, their uh, cultural identity, their religious identity, their, their family life, everything is located in that place. For them, God lives in Israel. God lives with them and is kind of present in the temple, and the Babylonians come and, and lay it bare. They destroy the temple. And they kind of take everything and everyone. What a horrible sight. But God actually brought them back. He saved them. He restored them. And what's awesome in this account, uh, other places in scriptures, uh, we hear the nation saying, where is your God, O Israel? You hear things like that throughout the Psalms and other places where the nations kind of rage against God, and they go, where is your God? In Psalm 73, we hear the mocking voice of the unbeliever, and they say, where is your God amidst your suffering and your depression? Where is your God in all those times? And the nations say that, but here they, the psalmist tells us that they recognized that the poor nation of Israel, the poor people, uh, the Jewish people could in no way save themselves. It had to be the hand of God to kind of let the people go back to their land, right? And we know the Persians, they did this. They let them go back and to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple uh, they, they were allowed to go back. And so this is the work of God. And the psalmist wants us to know that this work uh, is, is of God. And, and always in salvation, isn't this the case? That God is always the initiating party. 
And so if we were to liken our own salvation, the rescue of our lives to this passage, we would say it was God who saved us. Um, you know this is true. If you have a loved one who doesn't know Christ, uh, your prayer isn't, God, maybe please work with them and help them to understand you. Um, it's not like that. It's God, save them. If God save them, that's what you pray. Because God is the initiating one. God is the one who saves. He is the one who brings salvation. And we see that here as with last week. And so the first point, what we have is the community's joy at the return of exiles. It's as if you have one looking on the horizon and you see the slow kind of matriculation of those exiles, return, those returnees coming back into the land. And, and they know this is the beginning of God's salvation. God is answering our prayers. God is doing the work that he had promised to do. Not all were taken to Babylon. Some stayed back. And so you can imagine if there was those families who were there seeing those who were turning their loved ones, perhaps in old age, of course, um, but returning back to the homeland. If the first point of this short psalm is the community's joy at the return of the exiles in verse 1 through 3, uh, verses 4 through 6, you might say, is the communal prayer for God to complete the work he's begun. This is the transitioning point for us here, right? So God had saved, just like last week we said, God has saved, and now there's another kind of petition, another prayer, another cry for something more, something greater that God was promising Verse 4, it says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Negev. Anybody ever been to Israel? But in uh, southern Israel, uh, in southern Palestine, what you have is a very dry and arid place. It's a desert, right? It's a desert. And so during the dry seasons, the dry months, you have riverbeds that are dry and, um, and these wadis... I really don't know what a wadi is personally. It's a, this is an Arabic term, right, for kind of dry riverbeds. And sometimes they function as like tunnels, kind of maybe how you've seen kind of carving through some of the canyons out west in our country. But in this place, it's dry during the, the dry months of the year, which is half the year or more. And then during the rainy season, uh, these uh, uh, wadis, they actually flood out. And so uh, they actually end up turning the place into more of a lush uh, environment. And so the psalmist here is saying, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. And uh, thinking about this, I don't know anything about famine and want. I don't know anything about not having water. So I took a personal account of someone describing maybe what it's like to live in Israel um, and what water means to them. It says it's no coincidence that the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, is in autumn, just before the start of the rainy season. Season, There is no better time for uh, people to pour their hearts out like water before God, praying that this year the rains will come on time, that this rainy season will be bountiful. One need only look at the dried out watercourses and the shrinking shores of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Tiberias or the withered crops and the thistles in the fields to see that by early autumn, this is a land and a people crying out for rain. The first rains of the season have to be experienced to be understood. 
You have to have spent the months devoid of rain without even a hint of rain to the extent that you feel as though you cannot even remember what rain feels like to really know the wonder of the autumn rains. Sometimes the first rains come in and go. Eventually the heavens open and perhaps for a solid hour or for three hours or a whole day or night, the blessed rain pours down. It beats the summer's dust and dirt from the buildings, pounds the dry earth and cracked asphalt and cleans the stagnant, humid air, leaving behind a delicious, fresh scent and hope and hope. And so we see this picture of deliverance from God uh, in bringing the exiles back, transition to a time and a cry for rain, a cry for God to do work, greater work to restore the lands. It's a picture of a farmer looking for rain. Those who sow in tears shall reap in shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. If you can imagine that picture, right, being that desperate for water, being that desperate for God to provide, I go to Publix. I don't know about you guys. Uh, I don't know where you get your bread. I don't know where you get your water, but I go to Publix. Well, sometimes my wife makes me go to Aldi. Um, I'm a Publix man. But the picture here is, right, a cry for greater salvation, a greater work, It's as if the psalmist is saying, though God has saved us, life is still hard. The cry is for further saving or completed saving. Do you feel that way? You know that God has redeemed you from great oppressors, saved you from exile. He's brought you out in a great exodus, and now you are in a dry and weary land. You are a pilgrim on the way. And you know what it, like, what it feels like to be in a desert, as Zach mentioned earlier. You know what it feels like. You're parched. You're longing for God to finish the work that he's begun. What is this work? Well, first, I want to look quickly. What do they experience? What's the experience? God saved them, but what's their experience? The time of redemption following the exile were difficult years. The books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah tell us difficult those years were, how difficult those years were, the first days of the exiles return were certainly marvelous, but they had to be succeeded by dark days. They were succeeded by dark days. So that's a picture. God saved, but then they come into hard times. And you know what that feels like. Uh, We don't need to turn there, but in Ezra chapter 3, 10 through 13, we read about this with those early returnees It says that people were celebrating the reconstruction of the temple. So God was doing great things. They were back in their homeland and God was restoring their fortunes, right? But then it says that those, the elders who were there, they were crying because they said, this isn't it. It's a picture of saving, but this temple isn't even as glorious as the one before. And they're crying because they remember a day that was better than what had come now. And so some people look back and they say, there, there were greater days back then. I wish I could go back then. But what I think the psalmist wants us to do is not to look back and say there were greater days before a certain time when God saved us or whatever, but uh, that there are greater days yet to come. 
because the promise to God's people was a great salvation, a complete salvation. In Isaiah 40, uh, sorry, 51.3, it says this, for the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. If you go and read that fifth gospel of Isaiah, the chapters 40 through 55, it's continually telling us of God's great salvation. That's coming. And these people knew this. They knew this. These exiles were probably, they're longing for the day that God would save. And God does save them definitively. He saves them. It's true. And they're back in the land. And that is great. But now they're feeling distress and the hardness of life. And you're right there with them. God saved you, but you still feel the distress and hardness of life. And you're asking God to continue the work that he's done or the work he's going to do, continue the work of salvation. The prayer, right, is a communal prayer for God to complete the work he's going to do. I love that line, right, that he makes her wilderness like Eden. All of us have that sense. You don't need to be captors in Babylon. You don't need to go through Katrina to have the sense that at some level all of us are in exile. From the garden, moving forward in redemptive history throughout the Bible, in a real sense, we're all exiled. With Adam, weren't we kicked out of the garden, out of that, that beautiful place? With God, just like the Israelites felt like they were removed and separated from God when they were out of the land, all of us at some level feel that agitation deep down in us that we are in exile. But God doesn't leave us in exile. He saves us We know that our Savior Jesus actually came to provide for us a great exodus from that place, to bring us out of that place, to bring us out of Egypt. And how does he do it? How does God actually save us from Egypt? How does he bring us out? If you look in Luke's gospel in the ninth chapter in the 31st verse when it's talking about Jesus at his transfiguration, It says that Moses and Elijah are talking with each other, and it says this, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The strange thing about that passage in the Greek, when it talks about Jesus' departure, uh, it means his exodus. And so for Jesus, his great exodus came at the cross. His death and burial and resurrection was Jesus' great exodus. And if you look in Romans, it tells us that all of us who've been baptized into Jesus have been united with him in his death and raised in his resurrection. We've been raised to newness of life. And so with him, we have come through these waters. Paul in Corinthians says that all who went through the waters of the Red Sea were baptized into Moses. And so the picture is for all of us who've gone through the waters of baptism, we've been baptized into Christ. And so we've come out of slavery and bondage to sin. We have no more fear of our captors anymore. We've been brought out in great act of salvation. We've been brought through the waters. We've been baptized, united to Jesus, our great Joshua, right? He's our great Joshua. He's our great Savior. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus is a great Moses or a greater Moses. And Jesus, in the early chapters of Matthew, what does it tell tell us? It says he went through 
baptism himself. And then he goes through the wanderings in the wilderness, the 40 days in the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan, and he overcomes the test, unlike faithless Israel, where they actually grumbled against God and fell into idolatry and worshiped the golden calf. Jesus does not bow down to Satan, but overcomes for us because he's going to perform the great exodus for us. And where does the great exodus take place? At the Mount of Transfiguration, it says, at his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus provides for us this great exodus. And if you look at the the book of Acts, in my mind, the conception I have is when the Spirit comes, that's actually a picture of the church's great exodus. And now, like Israel, we wander this life. We wander as pilgrims in this life, waiting for completion of our salvation. Just like this psalm, right? We've been saved, God. We've been saved. You brought us through the waters of baptism. You've saved us, and you brought us out into the wilderness, and now we're wandering and we're sojourning towards what? The promised land. The promised land, but Hebrews tells us that we have a great captain of our salvation, one who has kind of gone the way for us, and there's a, a way that we can follow him now. He has gone through death and come out the other side, and now we can go down in death and come out the other side because of him, because of Jesus. And so now we wander. We wander, but we don't wander as those who don't have hope. We wander with great hope, just like the psalmist here who knew that God had saved them from exile, but he was saying, God, finish the work Right, that cry for the land to be restored, to kind of uh, have a great harvest. All of God, his salvation is always tied up in the land of, of flourishing, of, of kind of shalom, this full flourishing of, of the land, of crops being full and dry ground that was parched being kind of watered. That's the picture. Just like in Isaiah 51.3, that the land would be restored to Eden. And for us, If we look to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 tells us that our salvation isn't complete. For sure, God has justified us in his son, and we have no more condemnation, Romans 8 tells us. So we don't have anything to fear, but there is a coming day, a coming salvation when he will do another work, the future glory And it says this in verse 18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for this adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that, we, that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so we pray like the psalmist, God, come and save us fully and finally. Come and redeem us fully and finally. 
we feel this, I think, more and more at holidays. Like I said, sometimes feeling the exile, feeling the hard place of this life, the, the sense that we're in a desert, a dry place, is made more palpable around holidays. I don't know about you, but for me, growing up in a broken home, holidays felt most tragic. I recognized there was something wrong with this world before someone told, ever told me about sin. Before I had a category for God or anything, I knew this world is broken, and I experienced it most every holiday. You go into the holiday with this great expectation, right? You're going to gather the family. Um, Julie, can we hit that picture? Uh, sorry. Uh, we have this great expectation maybe, right, um, that this Thanksgiving is going to be the best one yet. And it's going to be all peace and happiness uh, that uh, we will finally feel that great sense of joy that we had always longed for and we wouldn't feel the angst of being in between the times, right? And so I don't know if you like Rockwell's picture. Um, what's the name of it? Does anybody know? Of No Want or the title of the, the, title of the picture? It's like... Huh? Well, I think it, first Thanksgiving is how people talk about it, but it's actually like of no need or of no want or something like that. And, uh, and what's interesting when I look at it, I'm like, that's not representative of life now in between the times. We know God has saved us, yes, but this is a hard time still. We still cry out for rains. We need God's provision. We know that a greater, better salvation is coming still. And we recognize this, and we're not alone. I read in a, in a blog and thinking about this, there was a man who talked about this. He said, as a young child, he always admired Rockwell's picture of that Thanksgiving, and he always so longed for that to be true of his family. He longed for it, and he just said it was just a perfect image, right? Is what a dream that would be to have a Thanksgiving like that. And so one day as a child, he went to his mom. He said, Mom, have you ever seen that picture? Oh, I'd love if you'd bring that turkey out and we could put it on the table uncarved and we could have just the family and it would be so great. It'd be wonderful. We'd be able to experience that. That'd be so wonderful. And his mom was like, okay, I'll do that for you, son. And Freedom from want, right? That doesn't look like freedom from want to me, but that's the name of it. Thank you. Freedom from want. And, uh, and so he is going to, uh, they're going to take the bird out and they're going to set it up and they're going to arrange it to look like Rockwell's picture, right? And the family would be happy around the table. And so dad's there, he's ready and mom and dad are getting ready to take the bird out of the oven. And what happens? The bird slides off the pan, lands on the ground and all the stuffing comes out. And the bird was cooked to such perfection that it just kind of fell apart, that's life. That's, li that's not life. That's life. Even though God has saved us, and we know his salvation is real, and we've felt it, we've experienced it, we know the oppression of living in that foreign land, knowing that we've been kind of taken away from the Eden that we once knew, and we know that salvation, we've experienced it, you've felt it, but you know salvation is still coming. The bird hits the ground. The family isn't always happy. First, it's uncle, the weird uncle, comes, and he's, you know, hit his flask too much. And then if you're like me, in our family, 
some people get angry. Some people get deeply sad. Some, because of their sorrow, don't show. They just can't muster it up to show for the holiday because of the deep regret and the pain, uh, even though they have a deep longing to feel that restoration, to be restored. And for sure, God does begin to rework the fraying fabric of our lives. My family is being rewoven in a lot of significant ways, but there's still deep pain. We cry out. We have that inward groaning that Romans 8 talks about. God, come and save us. Save us. And so when we look at Psalm 126, this is what we remember. God saved us. We said it. It's the community's joy over the return of the exiles. And I take great joy over all of you that God has brought you from exile in a great exodus through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven. But with you, I have deep groaning because for us, the hope that we can have in the desert place as we're wandering through this life, the hope we can have is the best is yet to come for us. And so hopefully we remember that this Thanksgiving when it's all hitting the fan.